Welcome to the Astro Hustle. I'm Corey Allen. It's uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you today, and I have got a legendary uh, guest today on the podcast to share with you all. Robert Thurman is the man. He's the legend, and uh, he's had quite a crazy life. He uh, he's been a friend of the Dalai Lama for over fifty years. Uh, he told me a funny story about when on the podcast. You know, he tells me how he. Um, whenever he was younger, that he had desired to be a, a Tibetan monk and that his teacher at that time told him no, that he would not be a good one. Uh, he ended up going to Tibet. He met the Dalai Lama. Uh, his teacher then again told the Dalai Lama that uh, he would not be a good monk and so do not make him one. Over time, uh, the Dalai Lama told Robert, uh, okay, if you'd like to be a monk, I'll make you one. He did, and then... Uh, very briefly after that, Bob uh, renounced his, his monkhood and, uh, and got married. So, so his first teacher was right all along. Um, he founded the Tibet House with Richard Gere and Philip Glass. And uh, that is the U.S. cultural embassy for the Dalai Lama. Uh, he's a professor of Indo-Tibetan studies at Columbia University. And he's been a major force in uh, translating Buddhist texts from Sanskrit to English. And uh, he also happens to be the father of Uma Thurman, which is a cool fact. Um, this is a real, this is a whirlpool of conversation. You know, Bob is like this living um, electrical wave of of thought and energy. And I mean, he's such a character, such a wonderful, uh, just incredibly learned and experienced and traveled uh person so at the beginning he's definitely a live wire you know that's for sure in the beginning bob uh, airs out some of his frustrations with the current state of world politics but after that we move through a kaleidoscope of topics about living in the present moment uh buddhism and some fascinating stories from his life and at the end i ask him uh, what are the most impactful things that he learned from the Dalai Lama over the last 50 years. And um, he shares those towards the end. So I think you all will really dig this podcast. Again, uh, Bob Thurman is a total legend, and it was an honor and a joy to be able to talk with him on this podcast. And I hope you all enjoy it very much. If you have a moment to uh, translate some of your time into five stars on uh, iTunes for the Ask Russell I really appreciate that. Like I mentioned in the the mini hustle episode last week, I was thinking that would be great if we could we could break into 300 five star ratings before the end of the year. And I looked back, and boom, it was already done. So I guess all of you listeners are are psychic. We're all we're all tuned in. Um, but anyway, thank you for doing that. It helps the show grow, and it really uh, truly helps to get more people like Bob Thurman onto the show. And it makes me happy, and I appreciate it. All right, enjoy the podcast and come connect with me on social media. Say what's up on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, I love hearing from you all. So come say what's up and we'll share some love. All right, until next time, my dear friends, be well, have a great day and much love. trying to get blown away by bliss today 
Oh, good. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for taking the time to, to come on and have a chat. I, I, uh, Beth sent me your book, Man of Peace, and uh, that's really, really an extraordinary piece of work. Oh, thank you. Oh, Man of Peace, it is, isn't it? The, the, well, the Dalai Lama is an extraordinary piece of a guy. <laughs> uh-huh. He really is something. Yeah. How, well, how, did you, how did you all first come in contact? Uh, in 1964, I was taken to uh, be his uh, student by uh, my original old Mongolian teacher, uh, because I, I was uh, who I'd been studying with for a couple of years and, and had become fluent in Tibetan. And um, so I, I was bugging the Mongolian to be a monk. I, I myself definitely, you know, was determined I was going to be a Buddhist monk for life. Mm-hmm. And he kept telling me, no. You are living like one now, but you're not going to be able to stay like that forever. It's just not your thing. Later, you'll see, and I wouldn't listen, and bothered and bothered. So finally, he said, okay, I'll take you to India, and maybe Dalai Lama will make you a monk. And then when he introduced me to Dalai Lama, he also told Dalai Lama, don't make him a monk. <laughs> uh, you know, help him study and so on and carry on, but don't formally make him a monk because it won't work out. And um, but you know, you're the Dalai Lama, so you decide sort of routine. And then Dalai um, Lama looked me over, and then we got to be really pretty good friends over about a year and a half. Toward the end, he said, "Okay, if you really want to be a monk, I guess I'll make you a monk." And then he was a little pissed off with me when I stopped being a monk, as the old guy had been right, you know, <laughs> a year or two later. Uh-huh. But anyway, we, he forgave me eventually, and we became really good friends, and he liked my children and my wife, and, and uh, we worked, we've been basically working together most of the time. Mm, that's beautiful. It, it, he's so, he was so determined to help young Tibetans become monks although he was more slow about Western people mm-hmm. uh, than some other Tibetan lamas. But anyway, he was so determined about it that he was a little, it, it had a shadow on our relationship for a few years. Uh-huh. Why, why was he a bit hesitant to help or to teach Western people? <laughs> well, because the key, Tibetan culture has a key thing that young men are, are helped to become monks, actually, because, which, which, um, which is uh, in, uh, which is uh, like a thing that they that helped them overcome their militarism. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd been a bunch of conquerors originally, and um, before they encountered Buddhism, and then they became much more peaceful and much more happy. But the core of that culture was, you know, those young like adolescent filled with aggression. They would turn that into sort of a Zen thing of um, developing learning and becoming peaceful ultimately although quite forceful in their debating and their whatever, you know, yes. and uh, in their study and competi- competitiveness, you know, in study. And uh, it created this uh, very peaceful cultural system, and he wanted to keep that going in exile. And so he, because all of the chi- the communists completely trashed the whole thing in Tibet. Mm-hmm. And so he, he amazingly, that you know, there's a hundred let's say 120, 30,000 Tibetans in exile in India, and there are 25,000 monks, mm. even now. Although now it's dwindling, you know, it's getting harder for the young people not to be caught up in, in uh, you know, 
more like you know energetic energetic culture or what seems to be a different kind of culture mm-hmm. but still it's amazing that they did that you know and they, and the and the tibetan people have clung to his own nonviolent response to the genocide and the invasion of the country and etc which he still hopes and still thinks although a lot of people are very doubtful of that will finally bring the chinese to their senses and they will have a good relationship with them yes instead of a con- ongoing genocide that currently is occurring. Yeah. Yes. Um, so speaking of nonviolence, like that's one of the things I hear people talk about a lot of time as far as, um, you know, the ideology of, of Buddhism and, uh, and, and the place of nonviolence within that. Um, what is your, your opinion on like, say someone was physically attacking you, what, what is the, you know, as far as the, the teachings would go, what is the response to that? interaction well that's like the martial arts thing actually the buddhist thing would be of course you can defend yourself and and in doing so you're not only defending yourself but you're preventing the attacker from doing something bad which is going to be karmically bad for him mm-hmm. you know ethically and karmically bad for him and um but you will do it better if you don't freak out in a violent manner, like become filled with fury, mm-hmm. but instead you use the heat energy of you know chi energy, power energy in a calm way, and turn the 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 aggressor's violence back on them. You know, like um, uh, like like grasshopper. Remember in the. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Remember with all the cowboys, and he would be patient with all their abuse and so on. And then, of course, ultimately, he'd flip them all out the window, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And because he would stay cool, then he'd go off playing his flute, right? Right. (laughs) So, the martial arts master, the black belt, Aikido, Qigong, whatever it is, you know, they do, they are able to be really powerful, but without the sort of violent anger that, um, it causes people's judgment to diminish and become off balance in a conflict and so on. So, Buddhist nonviolence is not naively, oh, please come murder me today. Right. <laughs> it's very practical and, and it, it's uh, very situational in the sense that if you can resist aggression effectively uh, by defending yourself uh, and repelling the aggressor, you should definitely do so, even in a, even in a military sense. There's a sutra that that tells that, but you shouldn't do it if you will, if you're too weak. Mm-hmm. By partial partial resistance, you're going to kill some of the aggressors, and then they're going to be more mad and be more violent and more oppressive in their domination of you. And uh, if you are strong enough, you should do it, and then but you don't counter aggress on them once you have they realize that you could. You then sort of try to institute a, a relationship where they won't do it anymore, and they will, and uh, and you will not actually counter aggress, like revengingly aggress, you know. So it's very, um, very sophisticated, actually. And you know, the Dalai Lama, like for example, so there's a few young hot Tibetan hotheads who want to try to make a revolution against China a couple mm-hmm. of times. They have done so a couple of times. They did. They did resist. Eastern Tibetans very fiercely for a while. But lately, I've seen him in a meeting with some of them say, okay, all right, all right, you guys want to shoot and want to, like, fight for independence. Great. Uh, Where are you going to get the guns? Mm -hmm. 
much money have we got? Do you think America or anybody who's doing business massively and selling out to China are going to help us? Okay, well, I'm with you. Let's go. But where are you going to get the guns? And then there's always a quiet moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and they calm down, you know. And then he says, see, the point is that eventually, and, you know, that might be next life, unfortunately, you know, but eventually, uh, the, we'll, this, you know, they will realize that they have not accomplished what they wanted by killing our people and wrecking our landscape and destroying their own headwaters or their own river and so on and um, getting the world against them, actually. But um, uh, and then we we'll dialogue with them and we're still ready to do that. You know, and he he, he wants to go back. At, he's ready to go back even when they're saying he's a devil and a criminal and all this yeah, just let me come and talk to you and talk to my people. See how, how what do you think when we meet? He's like that. Mm. So this is one of the wonderful aspects of uh, someone like the Dalai Lama who can simply like create a space in which the silence of truth reveals the answer that the person uh, wasn't expecting. Oh, that's beautifully put. You're absolutely right. It is. Although, let me tell you, like a lot of people are very discouraged about it because Chinese have remained so total hard-ass. Mm -hmm. uh, stupidly, actually, you know, they, because they stupidly think they can just make the whole world think what they think, and, you know, it's like ridiculous. And, uh, and it's funny now what's happening because Trump is being such an ass, <laughs> so awful and so racist and so crazy, that they're like getting a taste of being the good guys, like going to Davos and acting like they're going to fix the world and they're going right. to take, they're going to do climate change and they're going to give you really cheap and effective solar panels and blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's, maybe that's what's needed. Maybe they'll realize how, how much better it is to relate to people like that. And they will shift, you know, and, and, and you know, no more power to them if they, if they do. Ultimately, of course, they can't get the trust of the people in the world without showing they have the ability to restrain crushing people already under their power. Mm -hmm. You know, if they, if, if they can say, Oh, we're going to be so nice to you while they're trying to like, get Kazakhstan to allow them <clears throat> to control their transport <laughs> channels. Right. Right. But Kazakhstanis will see them crushing the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and the Mongolians. And they won't believe that. And the Taiwanese and the Hong Kongese, and they won't believe it, you know. So their fellow Chinese, even, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you What do you think about like as far as uh, uh, just your general perspective on on Trump? Like, and and I actually, honestly, I don't even ever talk about him on my podcast because I feel like um, someone who is a, a megalomaniac only wants their name in your mouth, and they don't care whether you're saying something constructive or or critical of them. As long as you're talking about them, then they're happy. So my response to that is to simply not talk about him. Right. Well, that's that's probably one of the good responses. It's <laughs> right. like Vaclav, Vaclav Havel, who, you know, the great guy in Czechoslovakia, who said that he and the other Velvet Revolutionaries got into a thing where even they were being put in prison or they were what? And in prison, they would, if you know, when in between torture sessions or whatever happened to them there, they would try to write a play or do something. And they would basically try to not think of the of the Soviet uh, Russian oppressors as existing. And they mm -hmm. just would disregard their existence and continue to be however they could be under whatever debilitating circumstances. So that's a great kind of way to respond, actually. Although... So I have an odd opinion about Trump 
you know, I can't, of course, stand the whole thing. And uh, it's like has me <coughs> completely, sometimes I can't sleep. Mm -hmm. I, I got I got hepped up uh, when I read, I, I, out of a sense of duty, because it's not really a great read, but I read Hillary Clinton's book, recent book. Mm -hmm. And, of course, she's not the greatest being in the universe, and sure. it's not a good read. But, you know, on the other hand... <laughs> She's definitely what Louis C.K. said was like a mom for a president who's going to do still some right. wrong, but still it's not going to be anything like that insanity. And I got so upset I couldn't sleep for several days because the other liberals are running around acting like, oh, she, I really want to hear from her. She did a bad job. Uh -huh. <laughs> Meanwhile, she, was, she won the election. She was cheated like Al Gore was by the Republicans. Mm-hmm. And in a way, therefore, I think in a, in a way, in a little longer run than these, this first insane and maybe another half a year before his stroke or whatever, <laughs> was, you know, uh, uh, he has sort of hoisted them by their own petard. You know, they are doing the evilest work. He's just wrecking everything. He's like wrecking the EPA, he's wrecking the HUD, he's wrecking the Department of Energy, wrecking mm. whatever he can, wrecking the national parks. He's just nuts, you know, and and they, but they have a plan to wreck everything that is longstanding and has been coming on since Goldwater, and they're getting to see its result now. And he's sort of the, he's like a caricature of what they were already planning to do, and just were restrained from doing by various great people like Obama, right? A little bit Jimmy Carter, but otherwise they've been basically wrecking whatever they could wreck, you know, because they they are these anarchist fascists, you know, mm -hmm. types, and uh, they are the much worse problem. And but he's kind of exposing them, like going out and campaigning for a child molester, <laughs> yes. rape guy, you know, <laughs> yes, and uh, campaigning for him and himself, statutory something, statutory narcissist, you know, and crazed. And so I don't actually see him as the biggest problem. I see him even possibly he might turn out to be the way in which their their complete illegitimacy will be finally exposed, where they've been cheating on these elections steadily. Nixon did treason with the South Korean, I mean, South Vietnamese president in 1967 and eight. Mm -hmm. Reagan did treason with the Iranians, you know, to beat Carter. You know, uh, uh, Cheney did treason with the Israelis to destroy, um, uh, to get close enough to then cheat actually at the at the at the counting with the computer counting mm -hmm. process in Florida, and with the Supreme Court, and so they are basically out to have been out for since sixties to destroy the government. These people and um, they are doing it. Then now they're seeing what it's like when it happens. And I think it's not. It's going to be over very quickly, and we'll be we'll be people. The New Deal will be a real New Deal, uh, starting in twenty, and maybe maybe holding them at bay from eighteen to twenty. I think, so like you know, if you got rid of if you got rid of the the unnameable, you know, from the Lord Lord Voldemort, right. the undead one. If you got rid of that one anytime soon, you'd have Pence, who is a total Koch brothers shill, right. And they're also criminal. They're all criminals because they cheat the vote. You know, they, they, they have all these counting machines. Chris Kobach is a criminal. He's the one who started interstate cross-check to remove the votes and dis disenfranchise all the poor people and the black people in every state they possibly could. Cleveland, you know.
Ohio is not. Ohio never votes for those people, not as a whole, you know, mm -hmm. because there are more of us who are proletarians than there are of those creeps, you know. Themselves, by the way, are miserable because if you have billions of dollars and are surrounded by lots of people who hate you, you're never going to have a decent moment. Right, right. And I mean, most people, I think, who seek power like that, just regardless of their intention, th there's a quality and an aspect to it that is um, going to be nefarious just from the outset. Yeah, it's it's really, you know, the poor, the, the, the super rich who are like people like Mercer is like a clinical case. Mm -hmm. it, you know, people assume because, you know, more oppressed people would have fun. You know, if they had like a Maserati or a Ferrari, <laughs> we actually we would have fun. We would enjoy the thrill of it and be content with it or whatever. Even with a beautiful woman, we might have fun. But those guys are incapable. They can't feel anything. They're like insatiable. They're sitting there all paranoid, like some kind of like a weird rock lizard mm -hmm. sitting over there, like zillion dollars. And they, they don't know how to have fun. They pretend kind of, oh, yeah, because I own this and that, but they, they, they are a little locked up inside. They have what my love, beloved Wilhelm Reich called the emotional mm -hmm. plane. <laughs> I love Wilhelm Reich. They're all locked in and there's no inner streaming in their lives at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. And is it uh, Sit Down or Sit Down, little, Be Quiet Little Man? Is that the name of uh, the one by Wilhelm Reich? I'm but, sorry, what was that? Is it uh, Be Quiet Little Man? Is that the one by Wilhelm Reich? Oh, yeah, uh, well, yeah, he, I think so. Yeah, and he, his great one is a pamphlet he wrote called The Emotional Plague and the Murder of Christ. <laughs> mm. I like The Mass Psychology of Fascism. That's a really good one. But a lot of young people have never even heard of him or Ivan Illich or Buckminster Fuller mm -hmm. now. It's oh, really Bucky, Bucky Fuller is... But I, I wrote... I'm just uh, completing a book right now, and, and Bucky Fuller makes an appearance in the first 10 pages. Well, or, you're um, not the usual person, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's because one of the things that has affected me the most in my entire life was reading Critical Path and Synergetics whenever I was in my late teens and Alfred Korzybski. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, Alfred oh, Korzybski, you know, Science and Sanity. And all these things and um uh robert anton wilson was a brief teacher of mine and so he turned me on to bucky fuller whenever i was really oh, young sure. he was great with his illuminati thing oh yeah <laughs> so he was really great the uh bucky fuller's thing that that bob uh, wilson popularized was the non-simultaneous interactive apprehended processing and that's how yes. bucky fuller you know described basically the present moment, essentially, uh, you know, oh, from, from an objective point of view. And that, yes. in, in repeating that phrase like a mantra uh, in my mind, uh, just I didn't know exactly what it meant, but I, I could, you know, the music of the words, it just took this repetition, repetition after a couple of weeks. I, I call it in the book, The Unbearable Lightness of Peeing, because I went in in this bookstore <laughs> and I was, <laughs> I was standing there at the urinal. And as I started peeing, that sentence, that term made sense in the walls of my reality <laughs> fell apart like a movie set. And all of a sudden I had an objective awareness of the self. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> I, <really. laughs> I love that. That's totally cool. <laughs> so there's all this this suffering and all this horrible stuff politically that you were just ranting about. But but Bob, we're we're in Nirvana. Yes. What's up? We're, what's, in, we're in the Bardo. You're saying yes. Yeah. What's going on? In the Bardo. Yeah, we, we got all this. Well, what's going on is is Shambhala is on the way, you know, yeah. and accelerating itself. And it's, you know, this, the Tibetans say 400 years more of this, but I tell them, <laughs> look, the Shambhala people didn't want to tell the blue meanies 
like the exact timing to get their defenses up. So you can't tell when it could happen. It could happen anytime. And it better happen because we're wrecking the planet. Planet can't take it. You know, mm -hmm. this continued greed and like hatred and delusory, like confused confusion instead of like all everyone having a good time, which we could have. Definitely, you know. I've mm -hmm. been reading this great book. Somehow some Aussie turned me on to it when I was expressing praise for Australia, where I've only once really briefly been and was saying how I wanted to go more. It gave me this book called The Song Lines. I don't know if you ever ran into it. No. Bruce Chatwin, uh, who about the Aborigines and their thing about singing reality into being. And those guys are far out. <laughs> and this is written by a Brit, you know, no less, you uh -huh. know. But who is introduced by a Russian who's actually a good guy and who says that, that the British were so bad in dealing with them because they, they were islanders and they couldn't take being on a giant continent anyway. And the people who were at, at home on a desert giant continent were like freaked them out so much. But, the, you know, the dream time thing and the singing the lines across the land and dealing with the lizard man and sure. everything. Just so out there, it's beyond belief. Those those uh, those Australians are indeed. Brilliant. Yeah, indeed. I'm I'm going to check that out. Bruce Chapman. Bruce Chapman. The song lines. It's okay. called. Right. It's a little chatty here and there, you know. But but it but it really gives you a feeling of some of these amazing Aboriginal people. Amazing. Wonderful. So hey, so speaking of of, of the Bardo and Nirvana and such things, one of the things I heard you say one time that I, I really appreciated uh, in an interview was that nirvana is like being blown away like as far as yes, a modern colloquial term it's being yes. blown away but but being i suppose still able to move forward you know amidst the being blown yes, awayness well when we're blown away it's blissful and we're more movable than ever you know mm -hmm. we're more to with it than than possible so blown away doesn't mean blown away can mean killed actually gangster. right, <laughs> right. <laughs> can can mean killed and Actually, dying, you know, being from the near-death experience literature as well as the Buddhist, once one is passed, wriggling around trying to keep a hold of the coarse body of the, what the, of what uh, John Perry Barlow calls meat space body, uh -huh. very perfect Tibetan kind of expression. Once one is passed that, it's very blissful. The death process, actually, if unless you're paranoid and 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 paranoid because you've been so evil in your life right. that you're out. And you're hallucinating all kinds of dangers, but otherwise it's very you let go of everything. It's orgasmic to die actually once you're once you're past the the extraction from the body, and uh, so so even that blown away still means you one's paranoid like clutching onto things, orgasmically blown away is what it means, and mm. uh, that is what nirvana is, and the real nirvana is right here and now in the world for the person who has blown out their egotistical paranoias and, and uh, creepiness. And, <laughs> um, and that, that's uh, totally already decided, you know, very clearly argued and at any level can be artistically, philosophically, scientifically can be prevail, which is why the Buddhist tradition has prevailed all this time in the midst of all these, these militarists, you know, all over the planet, you know? Uh-huh. Yes. I, no, I really love that description because, like, uh, it, it's funny how that vibe doesn't really jive with uh, culture sometimes and just society because, I mean, in, in my own experience, the reason why the blown awayness uh, resonated with me, and, and I think that 
it having a double entendre of being blown away can be uh, referred to as being killed and also as a state of awe, I think that's actually perfect because it's both, you know, it's simultaneous. It is it's two hands shaking. But, um, you know, in the sense of being blown away, I feel like that a lot of times, you know, most of the time really is just sort of, uh, I don't know, like just taking in the greatness and complexity of all things and yeah. having that be where I point sure. my compass. Sure. And, um, emptiness, emptiness only means infinite relativity. Yes, yes. And infinite relativity, like the Lakota people, you know, all my relatives, you know, what mm -hmm. is Oyatsuke Miyasun or something. I always mispronounce it because I don't know that language, mm -hmm. but... I think they say, or something like that. And uh, everyone is my relatives, right? You go in and embroil yourself in the sweat lodge. And then you get, you, you, you get like all beings and all things are my relatives, you know. They admire you in some way, even though you might squabble with them now and then, relatives. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're like a moss, like, growing on the entire planet, essentially, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, I totally agree. And you know, you know the the other thing I always like to say that which is like that blown away thing. Since you like that, is that you know in English, to, when you get something mentally, we say understand. Mm -hmm. So it shows the authoritarian nature of our backward European culture, Euro American culture, that you know that 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 some kind of transformative mental change connects to being obedient to somebody, standing under some authority mm. and some dictatorial authoritarian priest or warlord. Whereas in India, when you have a mentally, mental change and you gain a new insight, then the world changes for you and you go into a new world. So the words for moving and going are words for understanding, like adigata, when you say, I really understood something, you say, adigata, which means I intensely went there. Mm. You know, I, I'm, I go into, you know, tathagata is the name of Buddha, means gone to thusness. Mm -mm. <laughs> I love the, that, yeah. The mantra of transcendent wisdom is literally gate, om gate, gate, para gate, para sam gate, bodhiswaha, which means gone, gone. Super gone, totally super gone, <laughs> all hail to enlightenment. That, that's what it means. So the word gone, like they, like hip, hipsters used, used to say in jazz, right? Mm. So it's really gone, you know, really mm -hmm. gone, you know, like something like that. They mean they're, they're really into whatever they're into, and that's their world, you know, that when you say that, you know. So th it's interesting how, therefore, slang by people who, realistic people who are into whatever reality has, even with a hard time, uh, then they, they they reproduce the language of enlightened beings mm -hmm. because enlightened beings have precisely been ultimately realistic and then they found that that really gets you into a groove. You know? I love that you're saying this because this is literally what I've been thinking about just kind of contemplating in the back of my mind the last couple of weeks is like I'm a huge jazz fan and I've been thinking about this very thing where as you continue to learn and unfold, you know, the layers of the self and expand your awareness and just settle down into right. you know, the acceptance of your own being and that gets more quiet and nuanced right. and, and so on, that that becomes like you're going into that space because all everything is folding back. But what you can do and what I've really been focusing on is writing that 
that thing like a groove, like a yeah. groove in jazz. And it's like this yeah. improvisational like happening. And I've right. just been, and the more I've done that, even the more calm and just like the more I've been able to let go on a deeper level, that last 1%, you know, trying to really take my finger off the sailboat and let it just, you know, do its thing in the water. Uh, <laughs> but it's been, like, it's been like riding a groove, you know, it's, it's been fantastic. You know, I love that you're saying that. That's really neat. Yeah, sailing is like that, where you have to kind of let it find its own way, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. In relation to the wind, you have to fit with the wind and the waves, the whole thing. Yeah, I used to when I was like little. I haven't sailed in fifty years. It's such an expensive gig to do. I just have been so busy all the time. But it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So where do you sail? Where Where do you sail? Where do you live? Oh, I live in Austin, but I'm saying the metaphorical, the hypothetical oh, right, sailboat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so in Austin, Texas, not a whole lot of water. No kidding. Oh. <laughs> Austin, Texas. Do you know my friend Bjarke Tvet, this Norwegian guy? No. He shoes horses. Well, I don't even know if he's still alive. I haven't seen him in so long. <laughs> he's a great carpenter, and he, he did some work with me years and years ago. And his name is Bjarke Tvet, which means a birch twig in Swedish, apparently. Oh, wow. Uh, but he's well, Norwegian, and he's Norwegian. And he, but he, he, liked, he learned to shoe horses, and I think he's the big horseshoer in the area there in Austin. He lives in Austin, I think. Wow, a horseshoer. It's Norwegian, but born in Galveston originally. But he oh, got okay. away. So you have a great town there. I, I have never been there, actually, Austin. Oh, well, come on down, Bob. I should. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there sometime. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about your book a little bit more. Okay. Um, how did Man of Peace, how did it come about? It's such a, you know, whenever, uh, you know, Beth sent it to me, I w was expecting, you know, uh, just some small kind of, uh, simple type of thing, uh, maybe a narrative. And then I find I received this massive piece of art it's just this it's really a work of art from top to bottom this huge il oh, illustrated like graphic it. i was i was like well, oh, not, oh wow you know, it's hard to it's it's a little it's not as commercial as it could be probably because we wanted to tell the true story mm -hmm. and you can't show the greatness of the dalai lama's nonviolence you know, adamant nonviolence without showing the violation of the Tibetan people, which is not a popular thing to show. You right. know? And right. it's not only because everybody is sort of wants to sell themselves to China, they have this fantasy about it, but also because Chinese themselves get really upset and they're very miseducated. They, they, they think they've been nice to the Tibetans. You know, they have no idea. And I mean, the masses do. Although I think subliminally, they, because the government is not that nice to them, the Communist Party. So they kind of have, the, they know that, they, they know. But they, you know, it's so intense, the suppression of them, themselves in China that they even sort of don't let themselves know. They remain unaware of what they know. Do you know what I mean? They, yes. Their own intuition is remo at a remove from their daily consciousness. Mm -hmm. it, it gets like that when you're so thought-controlled, you know, in a, in a country like that. But it will change. It's changing, you know. Mm -hmm. So under subliminally, they know. They know it. And they have a Buddhist subliminal also. Which is which tend to make people vulnerable to communism, Buddhist, Christian, subliminal sense of wanting to be selfless and generous and whatever. That's how they fall for that thing of be, you know the people, you know, right. and they don't notice the dictatorship of the people and the power coming from a barrel of a gun. They don't notice that until too late. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and right. anyway. Uh, which is why Russia and China went so deep into it, you know, because Orthodox Christianity is very deep, deep tradition, mm -hmm. as as Chinese Buddhism is. But anyway, um, 
What happened was one lady who who died said before long ago, but she had a terminal cancer. She had a stage four, and they told her she had three months type thing. And somehow she met the Dalai Lama somewhere before you know when you still had it was not so hard to see him because he wasn't so such a masses around him. Yes, but and then she said told told him her story quickly at a car window actually. <laughs> and he made a car stop and listened to her intuitively i guess himself and then he said he he volunteered he said look you know i don't i don't pretend i have miracles or anybody does or whatever but i've noticed that some people have had benefit from tibetan medicine and i take it myself herbal medicine and maybe you can get a little more time with your family and your children if you go consult with them since the western doctors say there's nothing they can do for you and so she did she and her husband went to dharamsala and then she lived three three and a half years hmm. instead of three months and very happily not painfully although she did go but during that time she said she wanted to do an illustrated life story of the dalai lama to as a great out of gratitude you know that she wanted to do that and then she died and then her and then at the deathbed she told her husband who wasn't a writer, she told him that, uh, please uh, see that this gets done. So it became like a thing. And so he remarried since and many things. Uh, but he brought it to me, and he was working at it and working at it over many years, bit by bit, not knowing whether it would be a small comic or what it would be. And he was really mostly thinking about the Kundun sort of thing, you know, that movie that Martin Scorsese and Melissa Matheson did mm -hmm. about Escape from Tibet, you know, the child Lama, Escape from Tibet, that sort of thing. He didn't really know that much about the 50, 60 years in exile where he's been battling with the Chinese Imperium, um, you know, with the weapon of truth against violence and, and lies and, and, and commercial power, you know. And so... Um, so he brought it to me about 10 years ago, and then I was so enchanted with it that we puttered away at it, but it's very expensive. We had a Tibetan who said he was going to do it pro bono, a Tibetan artist, but he was really a tanka painter, and then he was very slow, and then he was destitute, and he needed a lot of money, and, and then, you know, we, we, we were never getting anywhere. And then finally, at some point, a friend who's, who, who loves the Dalai Lama also gave a grant about two years ago, two, three, maybe three years ago now, and um, with the grant we were able to hire a team of professional illustrators, five people, and uh, so then we really went into high gear, and I came on board full scale and, and also sort of had to completely rewrite the whole two-thirds of it since he escaped. Mm -hmm. And uh, also cut and correct some things in the previous to escape, and the, but they, they work. We worked very well. Then we brought another younger guy on board who had who had experience lettering comic books. You know, which, which is a whole skill in itself. Oh sure. You know, and um, and I messed it up a little by putting too many words <laughs> in there on the tops of pages. I put the words of the Dalai Lama himself in his March tenth speeches. A few of them, some, some sort of pithy things on the later pages, that little banners on the top, you know, mm -hmm. orange banners, him saying what he said uh, during those. Because he, he gave every year for, for 50 years, he gave a March 10th speech commemorating the day of the uprising, what the Tibetans called the uprising, where they, they tried to rebel against the Chinese in Lhasa to save the Dalai Lama. And then were all slaughtered, hundreds of thousands of them were slaughtered because it was... You know, a whole story. So every, he gives a more political speech, but always remaining nonviolent, 
but a political speech for 50 years, and so I felt he should have his say there. Sure. To, you know, pity thing. But it, you know, it's not, the comic, the artists were annoyed about taking a little space on the top of the page. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, you know, ever, I, I think that it takes many ingredients to create the right dish, right? Oh, I was really pleased. The editor at Hay House, who is the distributor, actually, also, I thought Tibet House should publish it ourselves because, you know, we didn't want us, you know, the Chinese retaliate so much against any publisher or anybody who tells the truth about what happened because they're very frightened of the truth in relation to Tibet mm -hmm. because if the truth about Tibet shows that they never did own Tibet in the past at all. And therefore, their invasion after the UN is founded is internationally against international law. And they thought maybe they'd lose it, therefore, if some Tibetans survived. Especially after the Soviet Union went down, Deng Xiaoping became really paranoid and instituted really bad policies since, you know, like imitating the original really bad policies of the invasion. Because, he, you know, he, said, he was said after the Soviet Union went down, hated Gorbachev and said, if we ever have to restructure in some way, we want Tibet to be filled with Chinese, not Tibetans, mm -hmm. he said. But, you know, poor guy, he can't because you can't live year round at altitude at two miles, three miles. <laughs> your, your wife cannot gestate a baby in the womb because mm -hmm. there's only 46 percent of the oxygen. Right. And you, you yourself get heart disease because your heart works too hard. And Tibetans, you know, they have nitric oxide throughout their system. Uh, very, uh, they have a funny, chemi unique chemistry, actually. So they smoke and they hike up and down mountain peaks and Sherpas, you know, they carry your pack and carry you. And you're like, <laughs> uh -huh. gasping for air, and you just can't live there. That's why it was empty, that plateau, you know. Mm -hmm. One you glass know, of wine and you have a hangover, right? Yeah, they would have <laughs> been there. Uh, you know, the Ming Dynasty would have conquered Tibet. Uh-huh. Colonized it long time ago, if they could breathe at that altitude. Yeah. So, is the initial? I mean, the initial tension there is it simply like as far as China, you know, trying to take ownership of Tibet? Is it simply just like a power grab, or just like a, a perception of type of thing? Absolutely, it puts them. It puts them to the headwaters of everybody's rivers in Asia. Mm -hmm. All the Indian rivers, even Pakistani rivers, Mekong, Irrawaddy, Southeast Asia rivers, their own rivers. They control that. It also makes them look more like a continental power like Russia. Mm -hmm. And it was a protectorate in the sense of the Manchu emperors and the Mongol emperors particularly really revered the Tibetan lamas and they were like their patrons. You know, they, they, they wanted them to do ceremonies just like Chinese billionaires today. They have a lama on the top floor of their mansion doing rituals to ward off bad luck. <laughs> They're very superstitious. That's far and so they honored and then they, they, they supported and the Tibet was a repository of treasure that they'd sent up there as offerings to their to their preceptors, their, you know, their lamas, their sorcerers, their shamans, or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and then the Tibetans got them to be more Buddhist and less vicious than emperors would tend to be, reinforcing the Confucianism, you know, the good ideas that Confucius had. And uh, everything was fine, hunky-dory, but until these idiot communists got in there that there's no spirituality and there's no... There's no, there's no spirits of the land, and you know they they got infected by our crazy Marxist weird plans, you uh -huh. know, uh -huh. you know that violence and nothing is sacred and it's just money and it's all production and it's right. all what, <laughs> right. you know, a reverse form of capitalism, you could call it. Mm -hmm.
And they just they 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 lost how to, they forgot their own double digging and their own good cooking. The Chinese, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, Dalai Lama knows if they come back to that, they will no longer. And they're drying up their own Yellow River, and they're screwing up their own, you know, like Yangtze, because mm -hmm. they all come from Tibet, and and it all depends on the glaciers up there not melting too fast, and. Uh, because they are monsoon cycle countries from China all the way around to Pakistan. And therefore, they don't have water except from melting glaciers from that third pole, the huge ice cap that's on top of Tibet, you know, mm -hmm. of all those mountains, you know. And their own Kunlun, the Chinese, you know, have that magical Kunlun, the goddess of the Kunlun, you uh -huh. know, and the immortal peaches and monkey, you know, they have their own magical stuff up there. What's your what's your take on that? Like your perception of the that more mystical quality of Buddhism? Well, I'm into myth. You know, mm -hmm. I I don't like the more mythical quality of materialism. <laughs> you know, man, the mighty hunter, and the women sure. have to grovel, and we're going to go grab some pussy, and we're going to do this and that. <laughs> and meanwhile, we're going to be properly miserable because when they're miserable, we're going to be miserable. Mm -hmm. I don't buy the mythology of militarism. And, uh, you know, insatiable greed on the part of people who never have a real orgasm is their real problem. Right. And they, therefore, they think they can own the universe and that will make up for it. But it won't, of course. <laughs> They're going to be uptight and cruel mm -hmm. and vicious to people. They'll never have pleasure or fun. And so, therefore, they'll keep wrecking the world. And, I, and, and their story, supposed history, is all mythology. Mm-hmm. It's all mythology, you know, like Mighty Hunter out there. Mighty Hunter was sitting in a cave, freaking out because there was a saber tooth outside, growling. And Mrs. Mighty Hunter said, well, dear, I, you know, I take a little stick and sharpen the point in the fire, and then I cook the meat on the spit, you know. So why don't you guys make a big take a pole, make a sharp point, and get out there and get some lunch for the babies. Mm-hmm. And then they cowering out, pushing each other out to go first, and they stagger out there, and then they learn how to hunt because they listen to the ladies. Right. <laughs> right. I call it the, the chicken shit mythology of history. <laughs> That's what I call it. That sounds and like a bestseller. They're mighty hunter, and therefore they're mighty Pentagon, and they're mighty nuclear weapon. They're just, they're silly. They're, yeah. they're, they're they're sad sex, you know. It's it's true, man. And I mean that's why whenever I look at, you know, someone like Trump, I mean, I don't necessarily feel anger. I just feel sad disappointment oh. and sadness because the su amount of suffering you can see in that person is so immense. It's like it a, really a, a, a nuclear furnace of suffering. Yeah, there's not no way to satisfy it. No way to satisfy it. Yeah. And uh, and the poor guy, you know, really. Yeah, yeah, it's... it's and it, all, getting all these other, like, the 18%, you know, Senator Bradley once told me, there's always been 80% crazy, you know, Ku Klux Klan, Nazis, hunters, weirdos, you know, in this country. We, you know, bit by bit, by bit they're, they're learning to enjoy music or something, you know, their children are. And uh, they're slow changing, but he told me even old days used to be like that. And this guy has just pumped that group up, and he did what they call the Democrat, the Republican guys call the white hype strategy. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like the end of the end, you know, and we're all going in a better direction afterwards. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. So let's let's switch off of that. Let me uh, let me talk to you about another another great thing I, I heard you speak on, and I really appreciate it. Okay. Sure. Sure. Um, talking about uh, 
relativity as far as um you know mastering relativity and the understanding yeah. of yes. uh, of uh of being and negative space and all these type of things and i really like um the idea you know it, of that because to me does that fit in with the notion of reincarnation in, in a in a literal sense mm-hmm. that's what i took away oh, from it that. that's very important in other words, uh, the, re the rebirth thing, although, you know, uh, the Dalai Lama, tell another story about the Dalai Lama. Carl Sagan interviewed him once. I should have put that in the book, but somehow it was getting too big. He interviewed him. On, we have the video of it. And he said, well, your holiness, what would you do if we had a foolproof experiment? We set it up and we proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that there's no such thing as reincarnation. So here he's talking to this professional reincarnation, right? <laughs> the Dalai Lama looks thoughtful for a minute. There's a pause, beat, two, three beats, and he says, "Well, I stopped believing it." He says, <laughs> <laughs> he says, "Why would I believe it if we proved it didn't exist?" He said, and then K. Sagan's jaw like hits the floor, you know, and it's sort of like amazed. He can't believe what he's hearing, mm -hmm. so he doesn't know what next to say. Quite sort of, he's at a loss. And then again, one or two beats. Then Dalai Lama looks at him, rubs his hands together, and says. Now, how are we going to set up that experiment? <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, he has nothing to say. So, so point is, it's a really good thing about Buddhist science is there's no dogma. Right. All laws of nature are hypotheses that account for people's experience, which means experiments, experience, in the past, uh, in the best and most economical and most logical and reasonable way, but they are waiting being disproved by some new experience. Mm -hmm. So even the theory of karma, which means the cause and effect, the evolutionary causality of re re being reborn life after life and developing as a being through an evolution toward Enlightenment, ideally, or if one acts like an ass toward worse, worse lives in the future, um, you know, towards taking just like we can, if we behave really badly in this life, things get worse and worse. Everybody hates us. We get more freaked out. We become more nasty. In other words, there's no limit to how bad we can have it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we kill and in the kill or be killed routine. And uh, if we are nice, then we have a happy time. And uh, we can see that changes like that in this life. And then they have a way of describing the subtle, the soul as the super subtle mind and how it gets the imprints of positive and negative behavior. And then it causes one to seek a life form that fits with one's attitude, uh, you know, a womb or an egg or a, a lizard's egg or a human womb or mm -hmm, a deer mm -hmm. or a lion's womb or whatever it is. And there are different ways of being reborn. So that's part of the infinite relativity. That's infinite relativity in time. Mm -hmm. And it's actually very reasonable, and it reflects much experience. People who remember previous lives very accurately, many documented cases in history. So it has a lot of evidence, and it is a very reasonable explanation. But it's not a fanatic thing. It's, you know, if someone can disprove it, great. But the point is, if, if it does happen, it's it's important to prepare for it because that's going to be a voyage where how do you book your ticket you know right what right. where's what's your destination how do you hit a good womb in a nice family <laughs> with a good mom where you're going to have like uh you know you're going to have good jazz you know yeah. <laughs> good teachings and good dharma teachings and Dalai Lamas to help you and stuff it's instead of like uh, you know trumpomaniacs right and uh, 
So, so it becomes like enlightened self-interest actually becomes engaged there in a past this life setting where you're not isolated in some life and time and going off into meaningless nothingness, which is a very depressing view of materialism, for which, by the way, they have zero evidence. Right. Because no one has remembered that they became nothing and came back and said, oh, guys, we're all going to be nothing, don't worry. <laughs> right. No way. That's ne and not only that, but it, that, that will never happen, you can tell by common sense. Mm -hmm. And so, but there are a lot of people who come back and say, actually, yes, I did continue to exist. And they talk to their people in dreams, and they, and they show up for psychics and whatever. Whoopi Goldberg can see them in the ghost movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that could all be baloney. They're all welcome to disprove any particular instance, but there's a lot of it to evaluate. And... And uh, I remember being this and that very, very little because I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dense, badly educated kind of person, but, you know, over mathematically educated person. But I did actually finally have some memories and things that were very visceral to me. And um, so that therefore fits with my experience, you know, mm -hmm. as well as my logic. And, um, and a lot of people have, you know. So that's it. I think it's a really, and I think it's really cool because why? There's no limit to how great you can become. You know, you can be greater in another life. Mr. Maga, he can be <laughs> McDonald greater next time by mm -hmm. not being such an ass. Right. About. Right. Right. I don't know what kind of an acronym that makes. He can put, make a cap like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me because of just, if you look at it on a, even just a scientific level, you know, there's the, the universe is constructed of atomic, you know, waves, essentially, and that those waves have resonances and build patterns That's and right. so forth. And, and we are the expression of those waves, uh, whether we realize yes. it or not. But the problem is that we place our personality on it and then become attached to the idea of a, of a personality whenever the personality is just the skin deep thing of something much deeper it's always that's a work in progress yeah and so whenever when you drop your body then uh you, I think that the the form of of atomic wave that is resonating inside of you, like an acoustic instrument that's making the sound of your your soul or whatever you would like to call it, moves towards more like like uh, connections, you know. So it moves towards more like shapes, and yes. that's how the process continues to unfold and unfold and refine yes. until you uh, eventually become, you know, the the most. Uh, in moving into the direction of the refined, you know that is that is your your way. Absolutely. Eventually, you become everything and everyone. Yes. Yes. And therefore, and and you see everything and everyone is totally cool, and therefore you have nothing else to do but try to help those who can't see how cool they are learn how it is. <laughs> exactly. And I love that. Even how cool you don't need them to see how cool you are. Yeah. You need them to see how cool they are. That's <laughs> why all these gurus who just want to be worshipped, it proves that they are not enlightened because they feel the need of being worshipped. If you're enlightened, you don't need to be worshipped. You feel too cool to bother with it. Exactly. So exactly. it's a don't slobber on me type of thing. Yeah. You know? and, and, but but you, it, it's, an, it's, it's, it's irritating <laughs> It's sort of, it's bad, it's not so much fun when you see someone else who actually is cool if they would let themselves go, get over themselves, 
you know, but yet are, are feeling really freaked out. And then there's, no, there's nothing to do but help them unravel themselves. Totally. So that's one of the things that I, I tend to say on the podcast a lot is like, everyone has this idea of what coolness is. And that's based on other people's subjective perception. So you're using your subjective perception of their per- subjective perception to get the story of what coolness is and then trying to change yourself to fit to that. But really, like the people that, you know, the people who are, who let go and allow themselves to thrive and be themselves are actually the ones who get the attention and and you know the focus that one would want from a cultural idea of coolness yeah that's it that's funny anyway listen man so man of peace is a what it is is it's a really deep thing if people get into it and read it to their kids and bit by bit and look at it themselves because what the myth that we're brainwashed is that if we don't be spending like all of our discretionary money on the Pentagon, we're going to have a horrible time and some Russians or some Mexicans or somebody's going to get us, mm-hmm. and which is total BS. So it's wasting that money. We should be spending it on childcare, on education, on health, on, on infrastructure, on networking everybody in, and AI, you know, whatever, pleasure AI. And, and, and that's what we should be doing. But we're really brainwashed that no one in history has ever been happy and vulnerable. So the Dalai Lama is the example of what the ancient Indian people did in India, what the ancient uh, Tibetan people did, what the Mongolian conquerors did, the Genghis Khan people, which is they realized that it's only happy by being vulnerable, by letting it go. Mastering relativity, as you said, is done by learning to surf. You cannot master a wave by grabbing hold of the wave and owning it. You can only go with it by tuning yourself to its massive and admirable and powerful energy, Mm. unstoppable energy, and then glide down the face of it and so forth and have an awesome ecstatic time. And you can never do that holding on how I own this wave and like, uh, <laughs> it just won't work. You'll, you'll be crashed onto the ground. And so, so that's the thing, you know, that so that's what people can inspire themselves to do by studying that and learning and enjoying that amazing triumph of him. And unfortunately, because, you know, China, ha- the, you know, Xi Jinping has not shown his true cards yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, or, you know, or maybe he's losing them. I don't know. But he better show them. Otherwise, the next guy will. And then when China makes allows Tibet to be the jewel for the world that it has always been, then they will be happy in China. and We'll all be happy. And then they'll be inspired. And the Dalai Lama's vision will come true at the end of that Man of Peace book. But we had to show it as a vision Mm -hmm. because they haven't woken up to it yet. You know, and then that means that the U.S., has to not only, you know, realize its ideal by making a real proper deal with the spirits of the American Turtle Island land, you know, the water keepers, the peacekeepers overcome the pollution, the red man, the red brother, not only the black brother and the yellow brother, but also the red brother. And that's far, we still haven't done that, but we're now going to have to do it fast before we destroy ourselves and everyone. That's that's a beautiful, and beautiful that vision. That will be inspired by the by the man of peace, you know, mm-hmm. and and the sequel. We'll do some more women of peace book. We're going to do next. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. So, all right, before we wrap up, uh, can you tell me 
What are the top things that come to mind of the most powerful things you learned over having such a long relationship with the Dalai Lama? What, what have you taken from him as teachings and or just thoughts or ideas or anything that have really stuck with you over the years? Well, I think um, discovering the lifespan, the multi-life span, and therefore getting out of this frantic thing of i gotta get it all done in this life mm-hmm. and and you know like a fear of meaninglessness and depressedness and that it's all useless sort of routine that materialism inflicts on its people to make them obedient slaves and that's that's what that was a very big thing then that reason you know develops and science developed to but but science is natural philosophy so therefore based on philosophy and reason can bring you to unravel its own crippling grip on your emotions and that therefore you can learn not to hate and not to not to harm out of lust and greed and you can be generous and you can be happy and others will respond and so forth so that's the second thing and that 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 enlightenment is the fulfillment of reason and science not only just some sort of do-gooder thing where you know you you sort of can't get anywhere you know you're being impractical something's very practical and it was very realistic i learned from him that 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 enlightenment is realism actually mm. That's the second great thing. And then the third great thing I think I learned, actually I'm still trying to learn, and my wife will tell you that I have, I'm still not fully successful, <laughs> to learn to listen to women and realize the, the, the high tantric teaching that the, the wisdom of women is the truth is the same as the wisdom of Buddha, and that the male has to has a, it starts with a disadvantage, <laughs> <laughs> a slight disadvantage, but has to learn to listen to that. So I think I learned that from him, mm-hmm. even though he was a monk and so on, mm-hmm. and uh, and never give up and and to retain uh, uh, joyful optimism even when miserable, and that joy is the path actually. I learned all that from him here and there, but I'm still, I don't mean I've fully learned it, but I, but, but I learned it enough to be confident that I will eventually sometime. Mm-hmm. I will. And therefore, I, I'm, 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 I'm happy to that degree that I know I'll, I will eventually be happy. Yes. I'm not that happy. Luckily, I'm still semi-miserable. Uh, old age, you know, 76, and, you know, like I'm so ingrained, you know. But I'm getting more cheery anyway. <laughs> Beautiful. That's, Thanks. That, that that is what we can ask for, right? That's right. That's right. And uh, no, we can ask for the whole thing, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we and we can ask. It doesn't mean we'll get it, right. but we can ask. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> we shouldn't pre-program failure mm-hmm. by thinking we won't get what we ask for. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it's like. You know, Buddha, you know, Buddha, one of Buddha's great names is Bhagavan. And Bhaga, the word Bhaga means a share, and it means luck also. So Bhagavan means the lucky one. So it's not incorrect to say that becoming enlightened means is the ultimate way of getting lucky. <laughs> and there's more to that joke that I'll explain to you. Another time. (laughs) Hey, hey, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks to Beth for bringing us together. Absolutely. I I had a great time. Do you know Beth real well? Do you know Beth well? Uh, No, we've just recently come in contact uh, over a couple of her clients. She's so nice. 
She's yeah. been totally pro bono helping Man of Peace. Oh, wow. Helping hopeless me, trying to, trying to promote this difficult thing in the era of, you know, of, of commercial, you know, consumerism and everything, you know. I'll tell you from, you know, my, where I sit here, you know, being a, a 35 year old and just having my, um, you know, the, my take on how things are and how things sell these days is that truly, if you want to get, you know, that book out there and get the people the way to get it, you know, retail is not even, uh, as, as much of a place to worry about, but doing things like this, you know, doing podcasts, um, getting it out there on, you know, through social media, you know, and things like that yes. and, and just showing sure. people because everyone just wants to see a story, you know, that's why social yes. media is so popular. And yes. so if you share your story, you share the Dalai Lama story, yes. people will get invested yes. and, you know, well, and they will the get these things. It should be. It should. It is kind of like you could say the 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 central script. It's the storyboard of the happiness revolution that we need, not mm -hmm. the violent revolution that we don't need. We had enough of those. Because, but the happiness revolution that is what we do need, and it is the story of that because this is a happy person, in spite of not being insensitive to great suffering mm -hmm. and deeply even practically agonized by it, and yet insisting that the only through happiness and peacefulness will that agony come to an end, you know, mm -hmm. be, be overcome. And the triumph of happiness, that's what it is about, actually. That's beautiful. And, you know, the irony is that the, the massive suffering that people experience often results in the greater inevitable peace that that person can bring into the world because they understand the depth of what suffering really is. You got it. You got it. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank Bob. you, Corey. Really. Uh, lots of fun. Lots of luck. Okay. Uh, All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs>